This is Take a Leaf with Green Writers Press. I'm Heather McCabe, and this week we're taking a leaf out of author and book designer Peter Mendelssohn's book. Peter Mendelssohn has worked as a dishwasher, a bookseller, a butler, a classical pianist, chicken farmer, teacher, cover designer, house painter, commercial composer, branding consultant, and writer. He's the author of four books, What We See When We Read, Cover, The Look of the Book, a forthcoming nonfiction work from Crown, Tenspeed, next fall, as well as Same Same, a novel from Vintage Anchor this winter. He is the former associate director of Alfred A. Knopf and is currently heading up a redesign of the Atlantic magazine while completing his second novel, The Delivery. Mendelssohn has been described by the New York Times as one of the top designers at work today, and his design work has been described by the Wall Street Journal as the most instantly recognizable and iconic in contemporary fiction. So, hi. Thank you for joining us. Hi. Thanks for having me. So, to start off with, do you think you could just kind of introduce yourself if you feel like maybe that bio doesn't say everything about who you are? Um, <laughs> is there anything that was left out? Um, I don't know if there was anything left out. My, my self-definition seems to change every couple of years or so. I'm definitely, as you can tell from the first thing you read, a little bit of a job hopper and mm-hmm. media hopper. So... Um, I began uh, my life really focused on classical music, and I was a pianist until about the time I was 32, which is when I started doing design. And I was pretty much principally a graphic designer then until I turned about 40, and then I started writing. And since then, the balance is definitely skewed from design Mm -hmm. to prose. And I, I, although I, I do still work as a commercial designer, as you mentioned, I'm doing this big redesign of the Atlantic magazine and a bunch of other stuff right now. I, I really am focusing now on writing and more than ever on writing fiction. Um, so I'm not sure if that's an amendment or a clarification or what, but that's the state of affairs. God knows what I'll be doing in the next five years. Well, that's so. exciting then, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I hate being tied down or pigeonholed so it's nice to keep it good good so you don't necessarily think of yourself as anything first i mean i i think of myself as really interested in making stuff and like in the simplest terms possible and uh i think you could call that being creative in one way or another um i'm much less interested in being creative in one particular way. I just sort of wake up in the morning and figure out what it is that I'm going to be making that day. And it does make life a little bit complicated yeah. in some ways. I mean, uh, logistically, for sure. But also, I think, you know, it's self-definitionally in the sense that I think people that tend to do a lot of things or work in different media tend to... I mean, these days we sort of think of that as sort of like the, the shallow dive or the amateur or whatever it is. Um, I like to think that whatever I'm working on, I, I work in it as closely and proficiently as I can. But there is, I think, a stigma these days around the idea of people doing mm-hmm. more than one thing. And I, I find that very unfortunate, but it's true. Yeah. So since you do so so, much, so many things and you're focused on more than one thing, how did you come to book design? Like, was there a natural path or did you fall into it? There was, there was no natural path at all. I, I've pretty much fallen into everything I've ever done. I mean, so I left the piano after graduate school at conservatory when my first 
daughter was born Ruby, and it was really just a question of sort of financial pressures and and uh, and also having spent decades playing the piano, it was just definitely time for a shift. And uh, you know, as it happened during those intervening years, I've always been making visual things and drawing and painting and. And so it was my wife suggested to me graphic design as a possible profession. And at that moment, that was the first time I'd ever heard the words graphic design and never considered that there was such a thing. And it wasn't until maybe a couple months after that that I found out that books were designed, which was also totally new to me. Um, uh, not that I was new to books. I wasn't. I've always read a lot. I still do. But the idea of them actually being made by a human agent who was making decisions about type and color and all that sort of stuff was a total revelation. As it happens, the way I found out is that I was granted an interview with Chip Kidd, who's a designer at Knopf, who's been there for, I don't know what, 25 years, maybe more, and is a, I was going to say a relatively famous book cover designer, but he is the <laughs> famous book cover designer. He's sort of like the synonym of, of book cover design. And, uh, I didn't really know that when I met with him, but I went in to just do a kind of informational interview, like, what, is your, what are your days like? Are you happy doing what you do? Those sort of those dumb questions, which are actually really valuable to <laughs> answers to. And then uh, the week after that, I showed him this sort of book of stuff that I made, which wasn't even really designed. It was just sort of personal projects and um, was not particularly proud of it. But I also didn't really care how the interview ended up, so I think I was very loose and relaxed. And in the end, I got a call a couple days later and I was working as a cover designer a week after that. So it was just happenstance, all of it. And it happened really precipitously and boy, I'm glad it did. I mean, it was then 15 years at Knopf, uh, as a cover designer. And that was an amazing, uh, both experience in terms of limiters to make pretty things and read, profound books, but also real education about how books are made in the sense of putting the words together. And I think that was the sort of tipping point for me. There was a moment where I just became more interested in how the words were put together than I was, how they were sort of clothed through the package. So um, mm. I can't remember what the original question was. But oh, right. But yes, it was just, I fell into it. It was completely random. Um, my mother knew somebody who knew somebody who knew Chick. <laughs> And that's how it happened. So uh, it was a mm -hmm. combination of good luck, nepotism, and just all the stars were aligned. Great. Do you feel like your process then is different from maybe other book designers or authors and that you didn't necessarily set out to do it? Yeah. I mean, I think that granted me a certain kind of freedom in my work. I never felt particularly neurotic about designing things because it didn't ever seem like a career path. Mm -hmm. It just seemed like someone had plopped me down in a sandbox with a bunch of toys <laughs> and I wasn't allowed to play with them. And then someone sent me a paycheck. So I, I mean, that's really the ideal way to feel about anything you're working on. Um, it kind of takes your ego out of it. And it takes all other kinds of mitigating factors out of the equation as well. And so it's always just been, you know, book design was always, and all kinds of graphic design were just always fun mm -hmm. for me. So in that sense, you know, I, I was very different from the people that I worked with. Most of them went to design school and um, and actually learned their trade on some level versus having fallen into mm -hmm. it. Um, 
you know, and I think also if there was any degree of success that I garnered in that job, I think it was mostly because I was so focused on translating the words of the authors into imagery, which is something that, you know, that part of the process isn't really, people don't spend a lot of time in design schools uh, teaching students sort of those particular translational skills mm-hmm. or like the, liter- the literacy necessary to be able to do that. And so in a way I was very fortunate. I came into it more of a reader than a designer. And I think that really served me in my career. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up translation. I just um, started Born Translated, which is a book by, um, I think her name is Michelle Walkowitz. And she's talking about language translation. But in it, mm-hmm. she's talking about how the act of translation never ends. There's like a constant translating. Is that something you sure. feel visually as well? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, of course. Uh, uh, book covers are. I mean, if they're good, then they sort of satisfy two requirements. One of them is that they're good looking, and the other, and I, I think kind of important one, is that they're kind of critical commentary and translation of mm-hmm. the text. Um, and what I found over time for that second category is that, that, you know, I've designed book covers for books that I could go back today and design another one for that mm-hmm. book, and, you know, uh, there are as many ways to make a cover for a book as there are ways to translate a sentence from another language or to um, to have a particular reading of a book. I mean, these are all highly subjective and variable uh, experiences, and they depend upon a lot of factors, like the time of day and what you've eaten. And, you know, translation is this kind of slippery art, mm-hmm. right? Um, and... Uh, I think with book design, just like with language, um, there are as many ways to design a cover as there are ways to translate uh, a text. So, yeah, it's a very apt analogy, I think. Um, You know, one's really trying to find analogies, right? Which is also what happens in translation. If If you do a extremely strict translation from one language to the next, um, as is commonly said, what you use is the spirit of the thing. You get this sort of formal construction on some level, but you don't get the sort of heart and soul. And to get the heart and soul, you have to claim some uh, access to the intentions of the author, which could be seen as a sort of, I'm not sure how sort of deep into critical theory to get here, but could be seen as a kind of dubious claim, but I think translators and critics and readers and book designers all feel that when they read the book, there's some sort of communion there that they understand a thing that the author is trying to say to them and that they then try to re-express that thing in their own terms. So um, I love thinking about that kind of design as translation. I think it's sort of the ultimate metaphor. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the first book you tried to design or did design? Yes, I do. Um, and I'm completely blanking on what the title of it is now. It was by E.O. Wilson, um, the Nobel laureate, and it was about, I think it was about uh, species that were going extinct, and there were a huge amount of parameters on the design. Um, he had a particular painting that he wanted to use on the cover, and 
there was a ton of copy. I remember it was a long title. There was a subtitle. There was a like a blurb. There was a reading line. I just remember it was like, how am I going to design this mm-hmm. thing? There's just so many elements. Um, and it was a paperback. And I remember in the end, what I did was I ended up sneaking the painting behind the cover, a die cut cover, so the painting sort of sneaks mm. through, um, and in that way, sort of minimized it, and and that became kind of a working methodology for me in design, which is that there's always something in the calculus that I'm trying to minimize because you know even if you just think about a book cover as like it's it's sort of barest components, right? There's the title, the author, and there's imagery, and that's, I always feel like that's two things too many on a cover that people can kind of only concentrate on one thing. So often what I'm doing is if, if there's a cover that's really image heavy or I want you to focus on something that's being communicated through imagery, then I'll try to make the typography recede in some way. Um, and vice versa, you know, uh, sometimes you have to let the type do the heavy lifting. But in any case, it's, it's always a question of uh, trying to erase mm-hmm. some of those things. Um, and I actually find that true in writing, too, is that sort of the best writing that gets done is actually unwriting, where you're taking words away. Um, but uh, in any case, yes, that was my first cover. Again, I can't remember the title, which is so embarrassing, but it was now 18 years ago. <laughs> and I remember being particularly waked out by having to do it. I mean, excited, but definitely scared. The first hardcover I ever designed was a book called The Death of Chopin uh, by Linda Eisler. And it was a biography of the Polish, Franco-Polish composer, Frederick Chopin, who was a particular interest of mine as a musician and uh I ended up doing the music edit on that book. So sort of an interesting example early on of all of my interests kind of converging Mm -hmm. because, um, you know, I got to work on the editorial side. I got to make the clothing for the book. It was a fortuitous and fun experience. Um, So I think those were my, I'm pretty sure those were my first two. That's so interesting that, you're given elements that the author wants. Are you always compelled to listen? No. Um, and it doesn't happen all the time. And the more I do this work, uh, the less it happens. Mm-hmm. I think when you're pretty uh, low down on the ladder, authors have less trust. So there's this idea that they're going to kind of micromanage the process. And the more that I've done it and the more my name has been out there, I think the more that authors give me that trust to do what I want to do. That's not always the mm-hmm. case. There's still lots of occasions where someone will be like, use this, do that, change this color, make the type mm-hmm. bigger, and I'll just scream inwardly, and sometimes I'll do it, and sometimes I won't, depending on the <laughs> size of the paycheck, I guess. <laughs> um, I don't know, or just like how uppity I'm feeling in that particular moment, but... Um, you know, at the end of the day, the author has to feel happy and comfortable with what's on their book. It's just, you know, I've been in the position now of having my own books out there and know how stressful it is to worry about what your book is going to look like in the world. Yeah. Is it then interesting to work with authors, I guess, not even to work with them, who are who are dead? <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a... I love that experience, <laughs> and... Uh, 
that, you know, if I'm working with a dead author, it generally means it's because that author's work has enough staying power that it's still in print and still needs to be redesigned. And like, ergo, the book is going to be really good. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. It's awesome. And then the other thing is just that I have a huge amount of freedom to reinterpret the work visually, which, um, like, as you've just mentioned, you know, sometimes authors really get in the way and, uh, they don't when they're dead. So, yeah, <laughs> I love that kind of work. That's my favorite kind of work. It's the kind of stuff I, I do less and less these days and just fewer opportunities to do it. Mm-hmm. But um, I do a lot of work for, uh, I mean, I work for a lot of publishing houses, but my, one of my favorites is New Directions, which is a small independent publisher here in New York that does a lot of European works and translation. And they have a really amazing, famous backlist. Um, and they've let me work on a number of their older titles, um, which has been a great joy for me. Great. Do you think you want to maybe pick an older title and talk us through the design process that you went for? Sure. I mean, you know, there, there are sort of two designs of these kind of older, uh, you know, public domain backlist literary classics that I think I'm sort of affiliated with at mm-hmm. this point. One is a piece by James Joyce, and the other would probably be the you know, I did all of Joyce's backlist, and then I did all of Kafka's backlist. Mm-hmm. Actually, not in that order. I did Kafka first, and Joyce. You know, I live I live in the Columbia University neighborhood, mm-hmm. and I I see, uh, you know, I'm surrounded by college students, and it's uh, it's really fun to uh, see them carrying around my books because a lot of these sort of canonical classic books are part of course listings, and um, the ones I see most often are definitely the Joyce's and the Kafka's, um, maybe followed by the Dostoevsky backlist, mm. but I mean, of those, I would say probably the Kafka ones are the ones that are most well-known. Um, and, let's see, to describe them briefly, they're, uh, you know, they're paperbacks, and they're very colorful, and each one has one or more eyes on it, like you know, mm-hmm. eyes in the sense of the thing you look out of. Um, and, uh, you know, I think one of the reasons why they kind of got the traction that they got with the public is that they were really, um, it was the first time, at least in this country or maybe anywhere to my knowledge, that Kafka had had a cover that was not kind of dour <laughs> and dark and kind of pessimistic and, um, and it really was the first time that it, I was. It was demonstrated to me the power of book design as, as you put it, translation or interpretation. Because I think there were a lot of people out there who read Kafka who didn't think of him as sort of like the prophet of totalitarianism or a kind of like a, you know brooding naysayer and like a shrinking victim and you know constantly preoccupied with a kind of like proto-Nazism and, and bureau, like death by bureaucracy. Mm. And, I mean, all that stuff exists in Kafka, but I, I would say it's not what really lies at the heart of Kafka, which is a, like a, a real humanism, um, a deep compassion, a tremendous sense of humor, uh, a, just an absolute love of the absurd and the strange juxtaposition. Um, and so those are the things I always loved about Kafka, and so I, I made the covers, I just thought, yeah, let's just make them really colorful mm-hmm. and fun. And, and weird, and let's see if that doesn't do something for the way we actually read the man. And um, it seems to have worked. So uh, 
I mean, I definitely started out in that process by trying out sort of the more standard cockpit meta stuff. I mean, I did a series of designs that I ended up throwing away that were black and white. I did a bunch of things that were kind of grotesque. Um, for instance, on Metamorphosis, it was just a blank cover with like a dead, like a squashed fly on the cover. Um, you know, that's the kind of thing that it was kind of visually satisfying. It was a little obvious to Bertocca, mm-hmm. that, that sort of stuff, the, the darker stuff. And in the end, I, you know, in the end, I just used the determination I always use to decide whether a cover design works or not, which is, you know, is this something that I'd want to have on my editions of the tacos that I'll have on my shelf for the rest of my mm-hmm. life? And in this case, it was the colorful ones, you know. I just printed out some of those jackets and I wrapped them around the books and I put them up on my shelf face out and just sort of lived with them for a little bit. And I was like, yeah, yeah, these are the ones. Um, so I hope that answers your question. I think it does. I think we all want books that are eye-catching on our shelves. And I like that Mm -hmm. you set them out just so that you can look at them, too, as a consumer. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, there's sort of two things. One is that, I mean, you talk about a book consumer. The book book has a series of lives that it shares with you, the reader. Uh, You know, the first is the encounter that you have with that book in a bookstore. Like, that's that's sort of the first moment the book Mm -hmm. enters your life. And that... In that sense, you really are encountering it as a consumer. You're, you're trying to consider whether to buy it or not. And eye-catching, I think, is, I mean, both funny in this context, <laughs> but also it's a really apt phrase because what you want to do is sort of stop a browser in their tracks. I mean, we're talking about physical bookstores, of course. Mm-hmm. Like, none of these things apply in the digital space, but um, bookstores are doing great, thank God. There are more and more in New York every day where I live, and it makes me extremely mm-hmm. happy. Um, and I'm friends with many people who run independent bookstores in the city, and everybody seems to be thriving. Anyway, that's a parenthetical. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that it is important that you do something that's eye-catching, meaning, which can mean a number of things, either something that's really pretty, something that's really colorful, something that's really bold, something that's really ugly, something that's really startling, just something that's really different. I think that's the way to go for that first encounter. And then there's the book that you have in your life after you bought it that sort of stays with you for as long as it stays with you. And the book cover has to work in that sense, too. It has to be the kind of thing that, I mean, if it were just garish and you bought it for that reason, you may not like to have it in your house after that. I mean, it got your attention, but is that really the cover you want on your whatever mm-hmm. it is, some book that you love for the, for the rest of the time that you own it. I think the answer is often no. So there's this weird balance between designing a cover that's uh, eye-catching and sort of hooks you at the beginning, but then also really represents the text in a way that's um, nuanced and can sort of stand the test of time. So that's why that's why I do that. That's why I wrap the books and keep them around. I just want to see if, they're, if they do the trick. And very, very often there's a moment, maybe a weekend, it's been on my shelf where I think, you know what, this is not the one. And then I go back to the drawing board. So you grow, So, how many drafts would you say a typical book cover might go through? I mean, it, it, it varies really wide, wildly. I mean, I, I have been through, you know, the big commercial books tend to take a lot more drafts. Like a lot of the books that I've worked on that were, um, you know, really big bestsellers, like I don't know, like Steve Larson's books or Sheryl Sandberg's books or, you know, books like that are expected to make mm-hmm. a lot of money and 
there's a lot riding on them because the advances to the authors are monumental. Um, so those ones tend to take a lot of rounds, not because I'm tend to be unsatisfied with what I do, but there's just a lot. There are a lot more actors in the mm. process. You know, there, oh, there are many people approving or disapproving of what you do. There's a lot of committees. There's marketing decisions being made and publicity decisions being made, and um, often the cover sort of gets held hostage to that. So those are the ones that tend to be a lot of covers. Those and books that I really, really mm-hmm. love and don't want to screw up. So, you know, I did the, I did the backlist for Julio Cortazar, who's uh, Argentine, was an Argentine sort of, uh, I want to say, metafictionalist author. He just um, read one of his short stories, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he uh, right, Blow Up and Other Stories is one collection that's still in print. And there was one moment not too long ago where he had a lot of titles and translations still in print. That's sadly no longer mm-hmm. the case. There's really... Um, I think probably four or five now in English that you can still get your hands on that are still being published. But the big one is Hopscotch, which is mm-hmm. his novel, which is this really wonderful but strangely sort of recombinatory novel. Um, I, I just loved his writing so much since I was a teenager, and I really didn't want to. I didn't want to do a bad job, so I ended up doing probably a hundred different covers for it, just for me. <laughs> and it wasn't like anybody was saying no. I just, you know, I just. I wanted to be sure that the end result was good. Um, it was also how I felt about doing Italo Palmino's books. Mm-hmm. Um, he was someone who's, I just, I really loved his work so much. Um, you know, and I was given the opportunity by his, his family, his daughter, his friend of mine, to actually redesign like these 20, I don't know, 26 titles of this. So I did a lot of sketches and just kept at it. But then there are those times where it's just like one and out. I've had plenty of those experiences where I've sat down and an hour later, I was like, wow, okay, <laughs> that came easily. But I think that's just sort of like the mystery of making things in general is that it, it sometimes it's just out of your hands making things. You know, like whether it works or not, it's just out of your hands because there's some sort of deeper power at work. Mm-hmm. There's some like inner, inner, a mechanism inside of you that's working away at all times and sometimes it, it like that work you allow it to come to the surface without getting in the way of it and sometimes it becomes overly neurotic but um, that's one of the most interesting things about creativity to me it's just how little of it is involves the actual your actual agency and like conscious work you know you have to sort of like work at things consciously like very conscientiously and constantly to sort of own the craft of it, but whether it's like a good idea comes to or not is just an absolutely mystical and mystifying thing to me. So then when you're designing for yourself for your own books, is that challenge mm-hmm. even even more so? It's a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nightmare. I mean uh, what we see when we read the cover for that forever, I tried really hard to get the publisher to allow other people to design it for me, and they wouldn't have that. <laughs> bummer. So I ended up doing so many comps for that one. Uh, but the novel was really the biggest nightmare, just because it's a novel. It's a first novel. It really matters what it looks like to me, and uh, I really wanted to make sure that the cover was a decent reflection of the text and... Uh, you know, in the end, I probably made, I don't know, 70 or so different versions of it. I sent five of them off to my publisher and just said, you know, you guys choose. It's out of my hands. So I just, any one of these, 
I'm fine with. And they chose, and that was the cover. Mm -hmm. So, but it's it's really difficult. Yeah. It's a really hard process. I'm really hoping for my next novel to delivery that someone else gets to do it for me. I might make it part <laughs> of the contract. <laughs> well, I think the one you landed on is very striking. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I mean, it's it's a strange book, and I think it needed a kind of odd cover, mm -hmm. but it also needed to somehow... Um, gosh, I'm sorry. There's a car alarm going off. Um, can you hear that? I can hear it a little bit, yeah. Okay, hang on. I think this person's moving. <laughs> if someone's driving a car by with a car alarm going off, which is probably a bad sign. Um, anyway, uh, yeah. I mean, in the end, I had some covers that maybe were a little closer to the spirit of the book, meaning weird. Um, but maybe they were too weird to kind of lure a reader in, as I was saying. Like, that's a pretty important part of the job as well. So, um, yeah, I think I'm happy with how it ended up. I'm really excited to see what it's going to look like when it's actually printed. Mm -hmm. And I still have to do some detailed work on it, but I think in the end it's fine. You know, I, like I said, I'm, I'm within inches of finishing this other novel, and I've already started thinking about what a cover could look like. And I'm trying to shut that part of my brain <laughs> off so that I can just focus on the writing. Do you think you could explain a little bit more about Same Same and... Sure. the writing and then maybe we'll move into the passage yeah um, so let me backtrack a little bit by saying that the next novel the delivery is sort of a straight up novel novel it's a realist novel uh, it has real characters and interiority and a plot and all those things we have come to psychological uh, complexity all those <laughs> things that we like about novels now, same, same, it's the one that uh, is coming out in February is the opposite of that. It's really an anti-novel in many ways. I wrote it in a way out of a feeling of frustration, um, just all of the kind of midless realist novels that I was designing covers for. There were so many of them that were just sort of cookie-cutter novels that were very much the same, and they're these sort of conventions of the realist novel that were starting to bother me a little bit, whether they were this idea of, you know, sort of standard ways to make a character that was likable, that were sort of standard ways to make a plot that was uh, compelling. There were sort of standard ways, there were sort of standard rhythms in which the writing would be, would sort of move the plot along or be you know, a, a little more intricate, um, and the prose sort of become luminous, and, you know, there were all these sort of conventions that were kind of bugging me. So Same Same in a way was started as sort of out of this kind of frustration, really wanting to make something different. A lot of the novels that I most love to read um, are novels that were written in the 60s and 70s and sort of like this heyday of metafictionalism, what some people think of as the literature of exhaustion, mm -hmm. sort of postmodern moment where Pynchon and DeLillo and John Barth and Coover and um, these people were writing novels that were really formally inventive and strange, and in their strangeness they showed you something a little bit new about life, which is what a realist novel is supposed to do. It's supposed to show you the ways in which life is interesting and and bizarre and but it, it's sort of like the realist novel kind of ceased to do that after a period for me at least mm. so same same as a novel that 
is very self-consciously strange and will probably have a small esoteric readership, I'm guessing, but I'm hoping a smart readership. Mm. Um, it's a book about a guy uh, who goes to an unnamed uh, desert country uh, that uh, to a, a kind of arts colony, and he's working on an unnamed project at this arts colony. And uh, in the course of working on this project, has a kind of mishap and has to get something fixed. Now, as it turns out, in the Middle East, as well as in East Asia and a bunch of other places in the world, there are these things called same-same stores. And these are places where you can take various items, clothing, electronics, whatever it is, to a place, and you give them money, and what they do is they duplicate it for you. Um, and I had a friend that was living in Doha, and Cutter came back and was showing me this beautiful shirt that he was wearing, and I asked him where he got it, and he told me that he had wrecked an earlier shirt and taken it to the same, same store, and they had duplicated it for him. And, you know, so then I had all these questions for him about, like, what, they, what else could they remake? Like, what could they duplicate? They're not fixing things. They're literally making sort of uh, uh, replicas, which was just such an interesting idea to me. And uh, in my story, this guy ends up at the same, same shop and has to get his whatever the thing in the book replicated. And that starts, that sort of sets off an itch for him. And he starts to replicate more and more things. And in the end, um, in, I don't want to tell you what happens in the end of the book. It's sort of an escalating series mm. of same, same happens. And I think the general idea behind this is that the novel itself and pretty much all novels are exactly this. They're they're speaking with other novels that, that you can't read a book that doesn't exist in the ecosystem of other books. That books recapitulate and reflect and mirror other books. And but ultimately a book is a kind of same saming of the person that wrote it as well as the same saming <laughs> as other books that have come before. So my book, Same Same, is a is a kind of a uh, an exploration of this idea of replicas, which I think is a particularly interesting thing to think about in this day and age where we live in a kind of simulacrum space. You know, you and I are talking right now in a kind of virtual space, yeah. um, and it's a space that we're all pretty comfortable occupying right now, but it's not real life. Mm. I mean, on some level, there's a lot of stuff that's missing from, say, this interaction that we're having. Um, and that stuff, I think, is really crucial. But these replicas become our avatars, our agents in the world. And as they do this, increasingly, we become alienated and abstracted from the, what I hesitate to call, but will call, the real mm. world. Um, and there are ramifications for this, right? I mean... There are huge political ramifications if you just look at how social media fostered um, the Trump presidency and um, the ways in which uh, just the, the difficulties, the sort of anxieties and neuroses and FOMO-inducing mm -hmm. kind of uh, death spirals of modern media where we've, we've constructed a world where we live inside of replicas and I don't think it's going the way we want it to be mm. going. So that's really, you know, for same, same, that's, that was really the genesis of the book was to talk about some of that stuff. But the facts on the page are that it's a guy in an arts colony um, and he's working on this project. And at some point in the desert, 
after he started same saving things. Um, uh, the same same shop starts producing uh, paper with words mm. on it, and uh, by the end of the book, you realize that it's the book that you've been reading. So um, the the thing that is same same quite literally is the book. Have you had the opportunity to go to the same same shop? I haven't. I'm dying to. I have the address of one that's in Doha, that's um, above the Gold Center, across from the main bus station, and uh, that's as much as I know about it. Um, but what I do know is that no matter where you are in the world, when you go to one, you sort of put your object on the counter, and you're supposed to say in English the word same same, which is crazy to me and really interesting. But um, I also liked the title same same because it's literally a duplication, <laughs> you know of itself. It's like a mirror mm-hmm. image, sort of a palindrome or something. Yeah. Uh, well, that sounds truly fascinating. Would you be willing then to read us some, whatever portion you want of the book? Or if sure. you picked another uh, book? <laughs> but. Yeah, no, no. That's 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 great. I'll, I'll read you this uh, let's see, four pages of Same Same. Let me just situate it for you. Our, our, our hero, Percy Frobisher is at this arts colony, which is known as the Institute. And the paper that's, this is towards the end of the book, the paper that's been coming out of the same, same shop is now coming out in vast amounts to the extent that it's like clouding the skies and starting to rain. This is very much a magic realist novel, as you can tell. It's kind of like, the paper is everywhere. It's sort of raining down on everything. So this scene that I'm going to read right now is about a bunch of the artists of this colony using the paper to build kites Mm. and it's uh, a passage about kite building but it's also a passage about novels and what I like and don't like about novels so hopefully you'll you'll hear that double reading so we head down to the main quad and assembled on the withered grasses boxes of tools are handed out by the admins, staplers, paste scissors, markers, crayons inkjet printers hooked up to car batteries string an assortment of stickers, sparkles, rhinestones, and soon everyone gets busy constructing kites. Most fellows work alone as kite building is delicate business, and it's well known that too many hands at work on a single kite tends to cause tears or lopsided constructions. The first builds of the day are motley, strange, and beautiful, each one sui generis, each attempting to solve the twin problem of aeronautics and aesthetics in a unique manner. A variety of shapes and sizes, each utilizing a different method for navigation, lift, propulsion. Some are round, some are tetrahedral, some small against the desert sky, some huge enough to blot it out. I later learned that the purpose of a few of the bigger kites is to carry a man or woman aloft. Predictably, all these kites and vehicles fail in spectacular fashion, causing in some cases grievous harm to the pilots. Though I suspect the clear yet brief view of the Institute in the desert beyond from on high makes the fall almost worthwhile. Most of the kites are for show, though. The sky is swimming, spermatozal with them. They squirm upwards, wiggling, juddering, falling. Some of the early kites are mimetic, resembling birds, butterflies, cats, dragons, etc., etc. Others purely abstract, representing nothing but themselves and their own formal relations to the world. They're huge flapping things, massive sky spirals, tentacled, wormy super beasts, ASAP symmetric space stations. Some are long and sleek, whereas others are blocky and square as mainsails. 
Some kites are weaponized, and there are quite a few kite skirmishes which everyone enjoys. Some kites, that is some of the most interesting kites, are made clearly to subvert the very idea of flight. These are what I call the crashing kites, and they're even more daring, the ground kites, those kites which are designed to never leave the ground at all, but to remind the onlooker of the constant and appalling pull of gravity. Looking at such kites as the ground kites, which are never supposed to achieve liftoff, I feel, as we all must, a longing for the air, which is all the more intense for its abjuration. However, several hours into the activity, I see that many, if not most of the kites, are beginning to resemble the tried and true variety, the basic diamond shape that is, with cruciform struts and that long and bowed tail, the usual, that is, the perennial classic. The shape and structure has been proven, of course, to be flightworthy over many centuries and carries the benefit of a high degree of sentimental and nostalgic value. Say the word kite, and people just expect that kite we all know and love. The standard one, which exhibits the requisite modesty, probity, nothing too flashy. Above all, a kite should be sensible. Everyone wants to construct one of these sensible kites. And the kites begin slowly and steadily to shut off their heterogeneity and converge towards a norm. At some point, one kite engineer discovers that the very paper he's using to build the chassis of his diamond-shaped kite is, in fact, a loose sheet from a kite-building manual. It outlines in meticulous step-by-step detail how to build this old-fashioned kite class using tried-and-true construction methods. And so it's not long after this that all the kites, every last one of them, begins to follow what becomes known as the textbook build, prim and proper. It's difficult to remember now, less than half a day on, given how prevalent these classic kites are and the degree to which they were, in the first instance, contrivance. How quickly we forget. I cast my mind back to the early hours of experimentation on the lawns here with fondness and regret. I already missed the strangeness of the early kites. Of course, all the kites work now, which is a major plus, don't get me wrong. There are very few failures. Each one takes to convulsive air with a sureness that no experimental kite could ever hope to attain. True, in a small ripple of last gasp experimentation, a few of the fellows begin to paint their kites with crazy patterns, old colors, Dazzled camouflage, and most notably, trunk loy of various kinds. Briefly, then, it seemed like we might return to the bold and garish times of the early builds, though, of course, we remember all too soon that these wonders are effects. That the new experimentalism has yielded nothing but impressive surfaces. Too bad, in my opinion, too bad. But as the winches and spools play out their lines and heads tilt back, everyone seems content. People smile as though the air were crop-dusted with serotonins, which it might just well be. Anyway, at the end of everything, there's a competition for best in show, and the judges clearly deplore the formal restlessness of those weird kites. And they, the judges, look with distaste upon what they consider to be that previous avant-garde commitment to novelty and difficulty. They do not seem to find this new and almost enforced normativity in kite production blameworthy or even remarkable. However, all of this strikes me as a little millbrow, frankly. I'm no snob, but the more I stand here, my neck cramping, watching the hot yellowing air for a new flying contraption of any kind, any disruption to the kite space, no matter how awkward or otherwise flawed, I think that we may have sacrificed too many species of pleasure in favor of the one, the surefire, the guarantee, the failsafe. And in doing so, have we foreclosed on new ways of navigating the sky? Thank you. That was really fascinating to hear both the descriptions of all the kites and then your narrator's voice is really 
strong. It's really interesting. I'm very excited to read the whole novel. Percy's a real weirdo, <laughs> and uh, like I am, and I, I think you know there's a lot of passages in the book that um, sort of provide uh, set pieces that are supposed to be commentaries on sort of the state of the contemporary novel. So. You know, that's a particularly didactic passage in the sense that it's showing uh, ways in which we have forgotten, I think, that realism, the way that we, we tend to tell stories, was at one point, you know, end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, was a really radical thing. And a lot of the conventions that make up the way we tell those stories um They've become just that conventions, and so we sort of read through them and pass them, and those books just don't interest me that much. Like I said, I'd sort of rather see a kite that's made to fail than a kind of standard kite that you sort of think, oh, wow, I'm watching a standard kite now. <laughs> you know, we all want to be sort of w woken up by the media we consume. Um, that's a kind of uh, sterile way to put it, but I do. When you read a book, you want something unusual to happen. You want there to be some unusual opening. You want there to be some unusual communion between you and the author. You want to pay attention to something you've never thought about before in life. Because life is weird. <laughs> and there are lots of ways to describe it. And, um, you know, so that passage is a little bit of a polemic. Were you conscious when writing this book in that passage of the challenges of description? I know you you wrote What We See When We Read. Which, you know, in many ways asks, like, what are we even picturing? Were you conscious then yeah. when you were writing that that was a challenge you were going to have to confront yourself? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a great question. And, and yeah, I mean, one of the things that I find when I'm making anything, uh, you know, if it's a piece of music or writing or uh, something visual, um, I always find uh, that it's hard for me to completely immerse myself in the process the way one is supposed to, that there's always part of me that's sort of sitting outside myself, watching myself do whatever mm -hmm. I'm doing. And uh, it's a kind of self-consciousness, actually, and it's a really bad thing to have socially. But I've decided to just sort of let it colonize the mm -hmm. work that I do. So in this sense, the kind of what we see when we read stuff have the character wonder aloud. I mean, it's a philosophical mm -hmm. novel, so I'm allowed to yeah. do that. You know, I have him wonder aloud, like, you know, why does this work this way instead of that way? And what are the things we're not thinking about in terms of cognition? Um, all of this sorts of stuff. Like, he's a, I think he's a kind of quester intellectually in a way that I am too. Um, and uh, there's, um, you know, it's not a plot-driven book, but there is there is a massive plot twist at the end in which everything I've just described to you turns out not to be true. <laughs> but um, I'll let you I'll let you find that out for okay. yourself. Uh, so. Well, I think you know that brings us to kind of the end of the questions I had for you. Did you have anything you wanted to throw out there? Uh, no. Thank you for having me. It's been a delight talking to you. It was a really wonderful time. It was kind of a fascinating bend on the traditional author interviews that, that I get to do. Because you've done the outside well, and the you. inside. Yeah. That's right. That's right. I have. Um, I'm hoping to spend more time on the inside from here on in, but we'll see.
Well, I'm looking forward to all of the things that you'll produce. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks for taking this hour out of your day. Have a good one. Okay, you too. Bye. We are incredibly grateful to our guest, Peter Mendelssohn. He can be found at petermendelssohn.com. That is P-E-T-E-R-M-E-N-D-E-L-S-U-N-D.com. Same, same will be out in February. Take a Leaf is a project of Green Writers Press, giving voice to writers and artists who will make the world a better place. This episode was recorded and produced by me, Heather McCabe. Music was used courtesy of the Free Music Archive. You can visit us online at takealeaf.org or on Twitter at Leaf Podcast. You can contact Green Writers Press on Twitter at Green Writers Pub.